Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere that it needs to be. We have on this show talked uh, a number of times about the Lifeline program. Uh, this is the program that is funded very much the same as the uh, other FCC programs that came from what used to be the Universal Service Fund and is now kind of breaking down into some new categories of, of funding. But Lifeline has been that program which has been uh, keeping folks for $10 a month connected to at least basic telephone service. And um, this program has evolved uh, as has the technology, and we have watched it go from just landlines to uh, wireless lines um, because a lot of the, the, the folks who are eligible for the program uh, have been moving quickly to wireless uh, technology. <clears throat> so that became a coverage point, if you will. And then the FCC has had two parallel things happen. One, uh, there became issues with the wireless part of the, of the program. And at the same time uh, that the, the FCC has to address reforming the program to address those issues, it also has to address the issue that a lot of um, uh, folks, particularly low-income uh, Hispanics, African-Americans and other uh, traditionally underserved communities are moving faster to wireless uh, smartphones as a way to keep connected to the web. So this brings on the additional pressure of not only providing the phone service, but to address broadband and and keeping people connected on broadband. So uh, to kind of help go through the latest uh, I guess challenge to the reform effort, which is this act or this bill that's been introduced in Congress that would eliminate funding for all wireless uh, applications uh, or I should say services. Um, I, I called in uh, uh, Tony Veach to come in from uh, Bennett and Bennett, which is a law firm in Washington D.C that deals with uh, many clients in the telecommunication industry space, and they have been keeping pretty close tabs on what's happening with uh, this latest bill and the FCC programs, uh, Lifeline, CAF, uh, E-rate to a certain extent, and I figured, well, let's get these guys on to sort of talk from a third-party perspective about what is happening with this bill, what is happening with Lifeline reform, and see where we go from there. So, Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No worries. Now, um, yeah, I gave a little bit about you know what Bennett and Bennett does, but I gather that um, telecommunications is your area of expertise, and where the FCC rules intersect that that telecom space is where you guys play the most. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. We are a communications law firm, uh, and we represent uh, typically smaller rural uh, independent 
communication providers, both wireline, wireless, uh, broadband providers. Um, we deal with a lot of universal service issues. Uh, most of our clients are eligible telecommunications carriers and you know, as a result of that, provide lifeline service. Um, so the lifeline program is something that we follow very closely. Um, in the past couple of years, it, it's been one of these issues that the FCC has really been very active in, um, and Congress as well has had its eye on that program. Um, you know, we recently sent out uh, you know a few uh, background memos to our clients on. Lifeline issues, and one of them that popped up was this uh, bill that would prohibit uh, Lifeline support going to mobile wireless carriers. Um, it's uh, so. If you want, I'll just jump right into that. Well, let's yeah, let's definitely talk about that because I was actually fairly shocked to see uh, <clears throat> the 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 approach that this bill was taking, which is pretty much to 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 not fund any of the wireless. Uh, programs, and you probably want to start to give uh, with a, uh, a general overview of the Lifeline program, just so people understand what it is. Some might be hearing about this for the first time, so just give a little background on, on the Lifeline program, and then sure. how it'll kind of drop in here all of a sudden. Sure, sure. So believe it or not, the Lifeline program has been around since 1985. Uh, it was originally created um, post-divestiture, you know, post-breakup mm -hmm. of the uh, Bell AT&T monopoly. And I guess, the, you know, the idea was there were some new fees that were added to basic residential wireline voice service, and FCC, Congress, and the industry thought, you know, that a lot of these fees may make, you know, voice service um, cost-prohibitive to low-income individuals. So, the Lifeline program was created, and it basically was tied to the subscriber line charge on individuals' telephone bills. And over the years, it kind of grew. But uh, 1990, with the uh, passage of the 1996 Act, uh, Congress basically, you know, codified, you know, uh, this this mandate that uh, phone service be be available to everyone, including no individual uh, individuals with low income. And so what it does is, is basically it gives a monthly discount uh, to residential uh, voice service. Now, back in 96, of course, it was all oriented to the wireline side. Um, and it, and it, it grew, well, most of the growth came around 2008, which was when the FCC went ahead and let uh, prepaid uh, or, merchant, or MVNOs mobile virtual network operators uh, be designated as ETCs for purposes of providing lifeline. Um, and that kind of kicked the door open and, and grew the, the fund. Um, and and these, are, these are your carriers like TrackPhone, uh, Virgin Mobile, you know, Assurance Wireless. Um, so you know, what those carriers do basically is they buy wholesale minutes from an existing you know, network provider, one of the four nationwide providers. And then they resell that, repackage that service, and resell it uh, under their brand. And what they've done is, you know, they they've figured out a way to offer a set amount of minutes per month, along with a free handset to low-income individuals. And then they receive, in turn, they receive the nine dollars and twenty-five cent um, reimbursement from the Universal Service Fund every month for each individual subscriber. 
Um, now, oh, back in, I guess it was 2012, the SEC released uh, what's called the Lifeline Reform Order, which adopted a lot of new uh, regulations aimed at stopping uh, fraud, waste, and abuse in the program. Um, and these, these prepaid wireless carriers have, have kind of given the Lifeline program you know, a, a bad name. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of examples in the news in the past couple of years of, of people being, you know, companies and company owners being indicted for falsifying documents and basically trying to uh, game the system. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one story, and I've, I've done a few um, presentations on Lifeline before, and one story that I that I always like to tell is um, I was here in Washington D.C. and in Universal Service Administrative Company, uh, the uh, entity that um, administers the Universal Service Fund in conjunction with FCC, they put on uh, some training basically uh, aimed at on Lifeline, uh, covering the new rules and new regulations. You know, and so I, I signed up. I, I wanted to go listen uh, to what they had to say. And one of the first things I did, I got there fairly early, you know, and I took a look at the sign-in sheet, and there were – you know, I, I follow the, the telecom industry, you know, pretty close, you know, and I follow the Lifeline program very close. You know, I, I saw a lot of names of a lot of companies on the, on the sign-up list that I had never heard of, um, which, you know, kind of goes to this idea that um, a, lot of, a lot of companies have been created in the past few years, you know, with, with the sole purpose of, of, you know, getting a profit based on participation in the Lifeline program. And that's, you know, it's debatable whether or not, you know, that's what has led to a lot of this fraud, waste, and abuse. But uh, it's one example that anyone that follows a Lifeline program should be aware of. Um, but my, my point to all this is this, this bill that's uh, been introduced by Representative Austin Scott, you know, was aimed at mobile wireless carriers um, now. This bill, uh, it's, it's a bit broad because it, 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 the scope, you know, would cover every wireless carrier, not just the, you know, the prepaid uh, NVNOs that that has been the subject of most of the criticism of the program. Um, so, he, um, Representative Scott, he introduced uh, an identical bill um, last year in 2013. Uh, that that bill died in committee. You know, this this bill will also die in committee. Um, but, but basically what, what he does is, is you know, it, it, it's more of a, I guess my criticism of the bill would be that it's, it's more of a uh, statement bill rather than, you know, a piece of legislation that actually advances the, the policy debate on, on how Lifeline should be, you know, regulated or how it should be reformed for the better. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's actually talk about that for for a little bit. I um, uh, have not really thought about this in the context of, you know, is this bill bill for real? Is it smoke and mirrors? Is it political theater? So right. So where where would you so you categorize this as the uh, bill as as theater versus bill that's trying to move a discussion along? Well, you know, I would say theater, but but. You know, a third party would say, "Well, it, it kind of does. It does both." Um, you know, in today's today's Congress, I think you know a lot of people use theater to to try to advance their 
policy positions. Um, but in my, you know, my critique of the bill, uh, for one, it's overbroad. Um, there's a lot of lifeline provider. Granted, the, the, the NVNOs, the, the wholesale prepaid providers have been the subject of most of the fraud, waste, and abuse. But there are there are other wireless providers out there. You know, many, many of them, you know, clients that that my firm represents um, that, you know, they participate in a lifeline program and they they give people, you know, that they just simply apply that 925 monthly discount to their service, um, you know, and they're not, their their uh, business plan is not oriented towards, you know, signing up as many customers mm-hmm. as they can, you know, in, in, in trying to, you know, gain the system. So, again, this is, you know, we've seen some bills in the past similar to, to uh, Representative Scott's bill that is aimed solely at NVNOs. Um, and, again, that's why I believe, you know, if that's you know this bill is just just a bit overbroad, um, but it's also again, you know, uh, unrealistic. And so, but to get back to my critique, you know, if if somebody in Congress really wanted to, in, in my opinion, realistically advance the policy debate around Lifeline, they would take a look at uh, Commissioner Ajit Pai's Lifeline speech that he gave uh, back in the end of July. Um, what he did in that is, and I want to say it's one of, it was one of the most significant uh, lifeline policy speeches by an FCC commissioner in a while. Um, and he, you know, he set out and he, he covered a number of problems that he has, uh, he views on the lifeline program. And he also offered a number of, you know, what I would call somewhat reasonable um, reform proposals. And again, and my point is, you know, uh, if I was in Congress, which I'm not, uh, I would take a look at that speech and I would I would draft the bill based on the language that that Commissioner Pai used. And so now, all, but he's not the only FCC commissioner that's uh, put some stuff forward, right? Because I, I've gotten the impression that reform of Lifeline is actually a bipartisan type effort, right, because you have um, uh, Commissioner Wurst, um I have the, the worst time for now. Rosenworthful. Thank you. Thank you very much there. Yes. So she's... Uh, and Commissioner Clyburn. As, as has... As, so, I mean, it's pretty much across the board, um, but is, is uh, Commissioner... Um, is, is the summer announcement, like, different in some way, or is it just the most recent well, reinforcement of a logical call for reform? I, I think I think the latter of what you just said. Um, okay. it, it's it, it's more of a reasonable um, call for for people to realistically take a look at at some of the issues that, uh, when it comes to Lifeline, are need to be talked about, um, need to be um, brought forward, um, whether or not. You know whether or not people act on on these suggestions. You know, um, it's it's things that that need to be addressed. Um, uh, um, you know, for instance, um, you know, in his his speech, um, you know, Commissioner Pai basically talks about um, you know calls on state commissions uh, along with FCC to. Try to try to look at ways to reduce the financial incentives for people to commit lifeline fraud. Um, 
you know, and a lot of that speaks to um, some of these some of these providers that um, you know that they'll go out and um, they'll, they'll have an event, you know, at a shopping mall or <clears throat> or somewhere else, and they'll the the company will basically hire independent contractors to sign up as many um, individuals for Lifeline as they can, and you know the, the Lifeline the actual service provider pays these independent contractors, you know, they, the independent contractors work on commission. So the, the financial incentive is, for them is to sign up as many people through the Lifeline provider as they can, which often leads to them, you know, disregarding the, the eligibility requirements, um, you know, whether that's uh, signing somebody up without examining whether or not the, the person qualifies for Lifeline. You know, it, it's it's those type of things. So, you know, one of the some of the proposals that have been floated around were, well, if you're a Lifeline provider, you can, you know, no longer sign up customers using an independent contract. You know, it has to be it has to be your employee. You have to be accountable for that. Um, you know, and that's 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 one thing that that seems, you know, it's it, it's an issue that that's that's been. Um, Talked about in the Lifeline world for the past couple of years, you know, people have um, suggested that you know the in-person enrollment of Lifeline subscribers, you know, be outlawed, and you know, and, and it's it's you know, and I'm not I'm not sure that's the answer, um, but there are ways to you know, like I said, reduce some of the incentives that exist for you know committing Lifeline fraud. Right. Um, <clears throat> So as this thing has um, has rolled along, uh, I had uh, some folks on, like I said, in in the past year talking about this. Where does reform stand to date? I mean, you mentioned that the order that was put out and it listed a number of areas mm-hmm. the FCC was going to attack to try to to rein in some of the problems. Where where do you think this stands as of now? Well, you know, to tell you the truth, I, th- I think the the FCC has done done a pretty good job um, so far. I mean, I know that there, there's a lot of work to be done. You know, when the FCC released the Lifeline Reform Order back in 2012, early 2012, um, it, it was it was you know there was some some major reforms. It, it, you know, and one of the main one of the main reforms that came out of that order was the, the National Lifeline Accountability Database. You know, a lot of people basically doubted FCC and USAC's ability to actually get something like that implemented, and, they, and they've actually done it. And it, you know, it's, it's in it's in pretty much full effect this year. Um, so I think they've done a pretty good job um, with the regulations that that were adopted in that order. But along with that order, there was a rather lengthy further notice proposed rulemaking, which sought comment on you know a host of issues that. Um, you know, related to Lifeline. For instance, you know, in that order, the FCC adopted the $9.25 discount or reimbursement rate. Um, And they specifically sought comment on whether or not, you know, this is, you know, this is correct. They they got that number based on a national average now. You Mm -hmm. know, some people responded saying, oh, it should be lower, it should be higher. you know, and when that was adopted, it was adopted as an interim, you know, support amount. It's been, it's been, you know, a couple of years, almost three years now. So, it, you know, 
as far as further reform, that, that's one of the major uh, things I think that, that they could look at. Um, the other, but what seems to be the other major reform issue, um, which again is something that um, TrackPhone has um, advocated for, you know, before the, the reform order, it's something that Commissioner Pai um, talked about in his July Lifeline speech, and that is, so when a, an individual goes to a Lifeline provider to, you know, enroll in Lifeline, they have to basically prove that they're eligible, whether, and that's based on their participation in a government assistance program or by showing that uh, their um, annual income is at, you know, a certain percentage of the national um, poverty rate. And the way they do that, for instance, the, an individual could show that they um, participate in food stamps, and they, you know, they show, show a document um, from their state, uh, state agency saying that they qualify. The lifeline provider looks at that, checks the box, okay, they're eligible. Um, and then they, they do not keep a copy of that document proving the individual's eligibility. So, um, you know, TrackPhone has said, um, and a lot of other carriers, a lot of other major Lifeline providers have said, you know, the Lifeline provider needs to save a copy of that document proving that subscriber's eligibility. Um, basically that, that way there's something, you know, that the FCC can come in and audit and say, hey, you know, we see, you know, hey, you, company A, we see that you're being reimbursed on a monthly basis for 10,000 Lifeline subscribers. Can you, you know, prove to me that, you know, all these people are eligible? Well, right now, you know, they, they have that person's application, that, that <coughs> the subscriber's applications that they've used to sign up, and there's a box that checked saying uh, subscribers showed uh, eligibility for food stamps. It was verified by employee, whoever. But there's no actual copy of that, that document. So you don't know, again, whether or not that was, you know, you know falsified or whatever. Um, so people think that, that having a rule in place requiring providers to keep a copy of those documents will bring more accountability to the program. Um, you know, it, it, it shows that, you know, that way if, they, if, if USAC or FCC wants to come in and audit, they, you know, the provider can prove that, you know, they're receiving Lifeline support for these individuals who are actually eligible. But again, that, um, you know, that's a lot of, you know, personal identifiable information for, you know, consumers. Um, there's, there's a lot of risks, you know, that goes along with that. Um, you know, you know that, that type of sensitive information has always been, you know, something that, you know, well, people have argued that. I mean, basically, if you if you're requiring these folks to collect this information, the net result is that you've got a bunch of companies that are carrying some really serious confidential information, and exactly um, even their past track record. What happens if you know if they're not taking good care of that information? Yes, and you're exactly right. And that you know, there there have been some proposals saying, well, this should be you know the the, the provider should have to. Uh, scan it, make a PDF of it, and, and then, you know, hold it electronically with USAC or, you know, a third party. <clears throat> and again, this, this, this whole issue has been, was considered uh, in the, the reform order, and the FCC actually um, sought specific comment on this issue. 
last year. So, so again, this is this is one of the um, you know main issues as far as uh, further reform to the Lifeline program. Mm-hmm. Now, is there something inherently about the wireless providers or the prepay wireless providers that seem to be more susceptible to the kind of fraud that's been perpetuated because the Lifeline program has always done what it's done pretty much the same way. I mean, people have to show the eligibility. Um, they, they get a, you know, a subsidy and, and how you know, that process works. But mm-hmm. we didn't seem to have this problem until we opened the door to wireless providers. But I know a lot of wireless right. providers run pretty solid businesses. So is it sort of like a sort of a category or a class of wireless providers? Well, here's here's the thing. It's because there is no billing relationship between the Lifeline provider and the subscriber. So so when you sign up for Lifeline um, with your you know wireline service provider. For, for those of you that haven't cut the cord yet, um, you know, you have that wireline phone in your house and you receive a monthly bill, you know, mm-hmm. every month. And let's say your service is $35. And so if you, you know, if you're eligible for Lifeline, that there's a 925 discount on your monthly bill every month. Well, these prepaid wireless carriers, basically what they've done is they've turned that $9 in a quarter subsidy into and applied it to a, a set amount of minutes, they're making that service essentially free. Um, so, so when you sign up for like track phone, uh, you get a you know well another thing that makes it attractive is you get a free handset, um, you know a, a basic handset. But so you sign up, you get that free handset. Well, you never you never again you know you never see a bill. Um, you never see a missing oh, bill, okay, that's it. And, and and you have a you know a very tangential relationship with the provider. You know, you may get a text message from them, you know, once a month saying, you know, you're you only have 50 minutes left. Um, so it, that's kind of that's what's made wireless Lifeline or prepaid wireless Lifeline so attractive is you just go and you go and sign up once and then you you know. As long as you recertify every year that you remain eligible, you know you you get 500 or, or however many many minutes it is a month um, for the rest of the year. Um, so that that's and again that's why it's been um, that that's why those types of carriers have, have kind of been associated with or have seen more more fraud, waste, and abuse coming. I mean, and it's not all the carriers, the Lifeline providers' faults. Um, you know, I, I want to say a while ago, you saw the FCC fine um, a bunch of, of of individuals who had gone and you know signed up for nine different you know Lifeline services, you know, just because it's you know it was easy for them. Um, and so because again, it's not always the provider's fault. Provide. It can be on the. Mm-hmm. And I guess that that's my point. I you know. A lot of the blame goes to the to the providers, but you can blame some of the, you know, some of the lifeline subscribers out there for abusing the system. Also, well, yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily a one <clears throat> a one way situation, but <clears throat> right. but, I, but I but I see how the structure of the program kind of lends itself mm-hmm. to a different type and, of and, issue than the traditional right. provider. And if I so could, that makes sense. If, if I could just make make one more point on that mm-hmm. um, with the, uh, about the um, 
prepaid wireless lifeline service. So the, there is no, you know, again, there's no monthly bill. And um, so it, you know, it kind of creates this, this system where there, there could be abuse. And so uh, a year ago, the uh, state of Georgia, their public, public service commission, they, they did a lot of research on this, and they said, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pass a law that says you have to, you know, bill a subscriber, you know, a certain monthly minimum amount. That way there, you know, you create this, you know, stronger relationship between the provider and the, um, the, the lifeline subscriber. And, and their hopes were, you know, this will help cut down on fraud, waste, and abuse. Well, um, you know, it's, 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 a good, it's a good thought, but it basically it violated the Communications Act. Um, this, this, uh, this rule by, by the Georgia, uh, state of Georgia was uh, immediately challenged by CTIA uh, in federal court, and mm -hmm. actually they won an injunction. Um, basically what, what the court found, what CTIA argued was that, you know, this, this rule by the state of, of Georgia is um, rulemaking in that, or that gets into setting the rates of mobile wireless carriers, which the uh, Communications Act uh, prohibits states from doing that. So, you know, again, getting back to, you know, the original question about Representative Scott's bill, if he really wanted to advance the policy debate on Lifeline, why not drop a bill um, that basically revises the Communications Act to mandate, you know, any lifeline service must have a minimum monthly bill of, you know, $5. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Again, and, and that, that's my, that was my whole point to my criticism of this bill um, is that, I mean, that, that would be something more reasonable that actually addresses a lot of the problems going on, or at least, you know, gets people talking about it. Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, do you have an idea of what percentage of the Lifeline service covers or the Lifeline program covers landline versus wireless service? Yeah, um, that's, that's one of the stats I've looked at, um, and I don't have that in front of me, but, it, but, but if I recall, um, USAC, every year they, they do an annual report on Universal Service Fund, and, and one of the stats they tracked about the Lifeline program was, you know, wireline versus wireless. And, you know, around 2009, 2008, it was, you know, probably 70-30 wireline to wireless. Mm -hmm. And now, now I, I want to say it's, you know, it's probably 70-30 wireless, wireline. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's, it's um, skewed heavily towards wireless, uh, and that's just you know, again, you, you can only have one lifeline service. You know, you got you to gotta choose one. And a lot of people, you know, and that's, that's you know, mirrors what's going on in, in the non-lifeline world is that people are choosing wireless services, you know, way more than they're, they're choosing wire, traditional wireline services. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's skewed heavily towards the wireless side. Hmm. Now, that, I believe, also reflects the changing demographic, which is that, a significant portion of lower-income folks are defaulting to smartphones as a way to get Internet access, which um, 
you know, the quality of smartphones having increased in the last couple of years have made this a viable transition, if you will. I, I yes, you're exactly right. Um, you know, and that I, I, I've seen the data on that, and that's that's exactly true. It's 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 mobile first. Um, you know, for for a lot of individuals that to access the internet. You know, it used to be, you know, wireless data service, wireless, you know, internet on your phone was was a comp- complementary service to your, you know, residential, you know, terrestrial wired broadband service. You know, now it's it's, it's a substitute for a lot of people. Um, you know, and, and actually, you know, even me, I probably, you know, on days that I'm not at work, obviously, I probably access the internet more on my my iPhone than I do, you know, at home, you know, my Wi-Fi. And and Mm -hmm. a lot of people, you know, you're exactly right. Then that brings up the question or the issue of the FCC's pilot project, which they started uh, roughly about a uh, what was a year ago. You sent me some information uh, on this, but uh, yes, describe that for a little bit because that's an interesting. Um, that's an interesting development too. And actually, until you and I started talking about, you know, doing this interview, I had totally forgotten about the pilot project. Right. Yeah, I, I have too. It's it's been uh, kind of quiet. So uh, that was also something that was created by the FCC in the Lifeline Reform Order. Um, now, the, the, about the same time that order came out, um, you know, the FCC put out its USF uh, transformation order, which basically was, you know, and followed the National Broadband Plan, which was the FCC trying to reorient, you know, the Universal Service Fund all, and all the programs under it towards the support of broadband. And so what the FCC uh, did, they said, you know, Lifeline, we eventually need to transition it to support broadband as well. Um, so how are we going to do that? So they, they created a, a pilot program and they set aside $25 million um, and had applicants, you know, apply to be a part of this in order it was basically it's basically just a, a data gathering mission um, to figure out a how do we you know support broadband uh, how, you know using universal service funds or, or a lifeline broadband for, for low-income individuals um, and you had a lot of you had a lot of people apply um, there were there, there were mobile wireless carriers um, some traditional wireline carriers, but you know the thinking is, you know why, why not, you know just be able to take that if you're if you qualify for Lifeline, let's say you know right again right now it's nine dollars and twenty five cents is your monthly discount. Why not? Why should you not be able to apply that to your home internet service? Um, you know that, that that's a, that's a good argument. Um, and so the FCC again needed to find out how they would do that, and it looks like I'd have to I'd have to review the uh, the details of that um, to see where they're at, um, whether or not that's ending. But again, it's just a data gap. I'm sure they'll, the FCC will put out some type of information, you know, on on what they've learned from that. Um, but again, it's 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 a tough question, um, you know. Right now, there's, you know, government spending, you know, it's kind of, you know, on on, on the Capitol Hill, you know, in Congress, you know, the, you know, government or federal spending isn't 
you know, supported that much. In order for the for the FCC to reorient Lifeline toward broadband, you know, I'm not even sure that they know how much that would that would cost. Um, so that there's a lot of factors at play. Um, but but I, I'm interested in seeing what comes out of this pilot program and, and what the FCC actually says about it um, to see what they're going to do. But, but so, again, even you know, and, and I say one of the, even if they do reorient the program towards broadband, I feel like you know there, there's still going to be a need to support uh, voice service. So. Hmm. So um, the question that I have asked in the past has been, given the cost of broadband, given the original intent of life, the Lifeline program, right? Because the Lifeline program started as a way to support a basic service so that you would have something. Mm -hmm. But now right. we look at the cost of broadband, and can those two missions really marry together because – to me, it just seems like nine dollars doesn't buy you a whole lot of of broadband. I mean, and I guess this is where we come into the Internet Essentials discussion, you know, about mm -hmm. uh, what Comcast is doing. But I see this disconnect between a nine ninety a nine dollar and twenty five cent subsidy and keeping people connected as a matter of last resort. Because I'm not sure that all plays out that way. I mean, what's, what's your viewpoint of it? I, I mean, I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I think any, any support for broadband would have to be, you know, at least doubled. Um, and again, let me just add a little bit more background. So the low-income program, the low-income support mechanism of the Universal Service Fund today remains uncapped. So theoretically, the FCC could adopt rules saying, we're creating a you know a, a broadband lifeline program, um, and it's going to be twenty dollars a month. And, and right now, that they could do that because because the loan income program is is uncapped. Um, but again, that would then inflate the USF you know astronomically potentially, um, and so there would be a lot of pushback from you know Congress and and a lot of other people. Um, so, so that, that's that's one way to look at it. Um, you know, I don't know. You know, the <clears throat> again, there there could. You know, I'm not sure what the, you know, what what incentive the the broadband providers would have um, in, in terms of of a broadband lifeline program. I know I know Comcast um, tests their pro program quite a bit. Um, you know, everybody has a kind of a, a bad opinion about them, so they often use that, you know, for for PR purposes. But, um, again, you, you know, you're right. I, I think any support for broadband would have to be, you know, the, the discount, the monthly discount rate would have to be much, much higher. Um, and, and, again, I'm, I'm not sure there's a lot of, you know, Congress wouldn't have much of a stomach for that. Mm -hmm. So it is a... Um it is a dilemma of epic proportions, I guess, in, in some respect. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah, I, I think so. But, but you know, the way things are going, you know, uh, the way things going, you know, everything else is, you know, all the other public support 
that, that used to go to, to phone service has been you know transitioned to broadband. So the, again, this is this one you know lifeline should probably be too. But how do you get there? That, that's the question. Right, and um, and it's going to prove, I think, a bit of a. Uh, it, it's going to prove a bit of a challenge. I mean, you know, you can look at the subsidy for, you know, apply to your smartphone contract because that falls mm -hmm. obviously within the realm of wireless and most, you know, many sure. phones, wireless phones you get have some sort of internet access capability. But even even the most generous um, smartphone contract is going to pretty much dwarf a nine. Yeah. And you reach a point where you, you, you have to do something, but you know, I don't know exactly what that is. No, it, it is. I mean, this, this is a broadband adoption issue. You know, if everybody that, that's looked at the, you know, the problem of broadband adoption in this country, you know, what's the, the biggest factor preventing most people from connecting to the Internet? And that's, that's cost, whether it's cost of, you know, monthly service, you know, or, or, or devices. And that's, you know, this is a, the FCC is, and others have been, you know, trying to address broadband adoption. And, you know, this is, this is something that, you know, that, that should be continue, continue to be looked at. Um, Right. Figured out eventually. That will prove to be, I think, very interesting uh, evolution, if you will. Let's um, let's change. Uh, well, actually, one one more question about the Lifeline program. So, sure. Do you have an, a, a breakdown of Lifeline? Uh, how much Lifeline goes to uh, rural versus urban? Households, or do you know? Um, I mean, I could. I I don't. I don't think I have. I don't think I have that, and I'm not sure if if I've ever um, run across that that um, that stat. But you know, I can. Uh, I want to say it's got to be more urban. Um, and just the fact from, you know, looking at, at some of the data. I mean, on a monthly basis, I, I track uh, the monthly disbursements to companies. Um, USAC has a pretty good tool on its website um, if you're interested in the Lifeline program. If you want to see how much, um, how much track phone is pulling down a month in, in any state, you can go to uh, USAC's website and find that out. Um, so, for instance, in uh, June of 2014, TrackPhone Wireless received $1.7 million in Lifeline support in the state of Illinois. Um, you know, they received 1.752 in July. Um, so, the majority, you know, uh, like we talked about earlier, a majority of the support is going to um, these wireless carriers. But again, if you look at, so let's take a look at. Illinois, and I'll see if I can <clears throat> try to address your um, urban versus rural question. Um, if you look at, let's see, Citizens Tell of Illinois, or let's, mm -hmm. go to, let's go to Odin Telephone Exchange, which I know is a rural carrier in Illinois. 
they received $222 in, in June of, of 2014, you know, which means that that's what, about 25 Lifeline subscribers, whereas mm-hmm. 1.78 million by, by track phone is, you know, uh, 90,000. Um, <clears> so again, I, I think, you know, and if you do look at the business model of a lot of these carriers like TrackPhone, um, you know, they, they predominantly focus on urban areas. I mean, that's where the people are. Um, so there, there's going to be more uh, potential subscribers. But, but again, um, so, so to answer your question, I, I, I want to say it's, it's, uh, more support goes to urban areas than, than rural in terms of Lifeline. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Let's talk a little bit about um, the uh, Connect America Fund because if we're talking about reform and changing of programs and pilots of of sort of new ways of doing things, the uh, Connect America Fund has gone through a number of changes. Uh, The complexity of it all seems to baffle many, many folks. (laughs) But but one Mm -hmm. thing that has come out out of that whole rumbling, tumbling, uh, CAF changes and so forth has been the, uh, the, the broadband experiments. The, we won't call this a pilot, but it kind of is a pilot to see if there are different ways to uh, mm-hmm. disperse CAF funds. In, in a, I don't know, two-minute summary, what was, what's the intent <laughs> of the uh this exercise in your your opinion and since you have a number your your firm has a number of clients who actually uh submitted uh, information to the uh, uh for the expressions of interest you know i think you have a good vantage point to talk about how you see this program sure um so the rural broadband experiments the fcc is um set aside, I believe it's $100 million to, to fund um, carriers who want to provide broadband service in these areas that have been deemed to be unserved uh, with broadband. Mm-hmm. Now, um, when, when we first heard about it, um, you know, people were very excited. Um, but, but the more you look at it, it looks like it's, it's basically kind of a way for the FCC to um, knock out some low-hanging fruit in terms of, of serving um, unserved areas with broadband, and it's also a way for them to gather data and almost do a test run before it gets into the official um, Connect America Fund phase two reverse auction process. Um, so, so it's going to look at it's going to look at these these applications that people put in. Um, saying they can serve an area for X amount of dollars. Um, so what, what the FCC did, uh, so uh, real quick, you know, the Connect of America Fund uh, was created to basically replace the old universal, high-cost universal service fund. Um, in phase one of the, of the Connect America Fund, or the CAF, um, uh, the FCC froze price cap carriers' uh, universal service support, and those, those are like the AT&T, Verizon, Wireline, CenturyLink, uh, and, and those, those big guys. In phase two, um, they're going to uh, the FCC has basically created this cost model that um, estimates the cost of providing broadband service to these rural areas served by these these big carriers. Um, 
And so in phase two of the CAF, the FCC is going to make an offer of money um, based on this cap, uh, cost model, and these carriers can, if they accept the money, then they, they have to comply with all the conditions that come along with it, which is serving all of these unserved locations uh, in a state. If they turn that money down, then the areas all go to reverse auction, and then, and then anybody can get in on trying to get the support. And so mm -hmm. these broadband experiments are, are going to be in the same these same price cap areas that have been deemed unserved. Um, but the the broadband experiments it, it's a little it's a little bit different because um, the the amount of money uh, I, I don't think it obviously is not is not going to be as much as CAF phase two. And it's it's um, I don't know it, 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 I'm I, I'm not as um, high on it as I was uh, when they, they first announced it, you know, six months ago. Um, uh -huh. but, but for instance, um, take, take um, rural Montana. Um, the cost model, there may be an area in, in rural Montana that the cost model has said it's prohibitively or extremely high cost to serve these, you know, 10 locations, which, you know, are, are residences. Um, so uh, a lot of people, somebody who's going to bid on that, they would say, well, I'm going to provide a fixed wireless solution uh, for X amount of dollars. Um, and that's kind of what the FCC wants to, wants to see in terms of data and in terms of these applications is how, you know, what, what is really the best way to, to serve these areas is our cost model really correct? You know, is it you know is it cheaper uh, to serve than, than what this cost model has estimated? And it's so it's it's kind of um, almost like a feeling your way in the dark. Um, uh, so I, I'm not. A lot of people again, you know, there were a th over a thousand expressions of interest for these, these broadband broadband experiment program, but it, it's uh, I think a lot of Carriers are going to take a hard look at it and find out that you know it's it's going to it's going to be way more hassle than it's worth, and they may wait. But but again, they may wait around for CAF phase two to get in on that uh, reverse auction for support. Um, if that if all that explanation uh, makes sense. Mm hmm. So. Um what has been the responses of some of your clients? Because you said when we were talking offline that uh, a number of your uh, firm's clients have, have have gone into the this exercise. What what's their take on it? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I, I think I think there's there's some, um, but 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 more of a few that that will find that it that it's going to be worth it. Um, you know, for instance, so all of our clients are mainly um, rural rate of return ILECs. Um, and a lot of times their service ter territory will be surrounded by, you know, a, a, an AT&T wireline territory. Now, I mean, the FCC has acknowledged that the majority unserved areas with broadband lie in these areas that are within people like AT&T's service area. And so some of these rural independent companies may have a strategy where they want to edge out their network and pick off some of these these unserved areas that you know butt up against their their uh, incumbent territory. Mm -hmm. So I think it may make sense for a lot of them to do that. Um, 
but again, it's just um, it, 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 it's it just it's got to make sense for some people, you know. And this is this is I'll, I'll provide an example of you know like uh, you know ten years ago or seven years ago, there were a lot of you know rate of return ILEX that purchased um, exchanges from neighboring price cap carriers, and, and what they what they found was that. These areas, you know, had been neglected for years um, while because the price cap carriers, as we all know, like to focus on places where their return on investment is a lot higher, which are, you know, which are the, the more populated areas. Mm-hmm. So um, what we may find out is, you know, if you go in for that support, well, you're, you know, you're on the hook for, it looks like you're going to have to be providing, you know, it, once the CAF phase two final rules come out, maybe 25 megabit service downstream. Now, if you're serving a rural area, that, that sometimes that's, believe it or not, is, is difficult for rural carriers. Um, so the, the amount of support has to be there. Um, and if it's not, you know, some of these areas, um, you know, it's questionable whether or not, you know, there'll be much interest in some of these areas. But, but again, there, there'll be somewhere it makes perfect sense and, it, and it's easier and those will be the ones that, that, that get, you know, that, that people go after. Hmm. Do you think or have you seen any signs that uh, these carriers, the, the local rural carriers, are thinking creatively or thinking differently than before? Because when I say before, I mean like three, four, five years ago, because one of the criticisms that I heard from folks during the uh, request for expressions of interest is mm-hmm. that the traditional rural provider has become leaned on the the subsidy program and mm-hmm. would not be able to exist without it. But it seems like because of politics and budgets and a number of things, that mm-hmm. there's a need for some different approach to how to think about this. Um, that's good maybe from the outside looking in, but from again, from your vantage point of having all these people as clients, are you seeing creative different approaches, you know, come out of the uh, expressions of interest that shows maybe a different kind of thinking by the, the uh, local providers? Absolutely. Um, and you know, and that's that's in terms of the technology used. That's in terms of of companies creating, you know, or cutting costs. The companies partnering with each other um, to to make you know things less expensive. I mean, I mean, one example you take a look at uh, fixed wireless broadband. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with with WISPs, um, mm-hmm. and those are independent ISPs that popped up in a lot of these rural areas to serve people. Well, there's a lot of of traditional um, rural ILECs that are now getting into the WISP business or, or, or now offering WISP-type access under, under their own, you know, company. And that's because, you know, it's, it's, it's really expensive to, um, to, to lay fiber, especially, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a house that's 25 miles outside of, of the city limits, it, it, it's expensive to, to lay copper down also. So you, that, that fixed wireless you know that's your, your wireless local loop, and, it, and that's that's some type. You know that, that's one example of the, the innovations or, or the you know ways that companies are getting creative to 
you know, be able to serve somebody without making it super expensive. Um, but, but again, you look at so the, the, the FCC's transformation order back in late 2011, you know, it, it really hit a lot of companies. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I'm, I'm from rural America, um, and there's, there's a lot of areas that would not receive broadband service without some type of, of government support, whether that's state support or federal support. But it's, you know, and to me it's a no-brainer that you need to support these areas. And again, that, and, you know, and that goes to, you know, that, that connecting these areas benefits people that live there. It also benefits people that, you know, live in Washington, D.C. You know, what if I'm, you know, what if I'm, you know, a, a local artisan that, that sells my stuff on Etsy? Well, if, if I have, you know, all those people in rural America connected to the Internet, I mean, that's a larger, you know, potential customers that mm-hmm. I living in Washington, D.C. could sell my products to. And that's, you know, again, that's the network effects. But um, if you want to see basically uh, what, what uh, rural companies are doing um, in terms of broadband uh, and serving their customers, uh, I'd like to uh, direct you to NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association. They have a, uh, <laughs> a program called the Smart Rural Community Program, and that they uh, award you know, basically they, they give awards to companies uh, on an annual basis for for doing you know these type of things, innovating, um, serving their customers, being involved in their communities, et cetera. And I, you know, I, I, um, I, I really encourage you to, to check that out and anyone mm-hmm. else who's listening to, uh, to go to NTCA's website and, and look at that um, if you want um, examples of, of some of the, the neat, uh, innovative uh, things that, that, that these companies are doing. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion. I know it's a bit wonky for, for some folks, but uh, – but I do know that there are people who are, who are paying attention to policy and how policy affects folks in, in the trenches. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the better, best takeaways from this discussion today, you know, is about the whole, you know, what do we have to fear or not have to fear from the, this bill in Congress. And I think that, uh, you know, having this in context of, you know, why this is going on, what they're trying to achieve. Uh, you know, the fact that it brings focus on the reform issues is, is a big plus. Uh, you know, I was a bit panicked back in uh, the summer, you know, when I was thinking that, oh, here they come again, and, you know, they're all agitated because, you know, this has become the Obama phone or some such silliness. And mm-hmm. and and so it's like, oh, you know, where are we going next? So it's good to know that there are rational heads that are prevailing in the discussion, that reform is moving forward, it still has some ways to go, and at some point we're going to have to grapple with an issue of intent of the original mission and, uh, you know, in terms of basic service and the financial realities of providing that in a broadband world. So, you know, having all of that to, to, to chew on, has been good. I appreciate your, your time, you know, taking time from your day to, to come in and, and, and share some of these insights with us. So thank you very much. Oh, much, much appreciated. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. I, I really enjoy talking about these issues and getting a chance to highlight uh, some of the, the, the companies that, that our firm represents. Thank you. Well, excellent. Excellent. Well, again, thank you. And uh, we'll, you and I obviously will keep in touch as, as things develop 
to the audience, thank you for listening in again. We really appreciate your support. And uh, we'll be back again soon with more information, more interesting stuff on you know, how to get more, better, faster broadband everywhere it needs to be. Have a great day. Talk to you again soon.